Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. It's Monday, the 2nd of January. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to the historian and writer, Olesia Kromaychuk, director of the Ukrainian Institute London, and the author most recently of The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister. We'll discuss her recent piece for The New Statesman and why the West underestimated Ukraine at the start of Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Alessia Kremechuk, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So I just want to start with this very powerful piece you write for The New Statesman, which I'll link to in the show notes, about why the West underestimated Ukraine. For our listeners, I was hoping you could summarize why Ukraine was made to prove itself at the outset of Russia's full-scale invasion. Right. Yes. I think it's a question really of whose story we listen to more generally. This is just the Ukrainian example is just a very vivid example of that. Do we listen to the loudest voices, the voices that we perceive to be authoritative because they fit an image of a credible voice? Or do we listen to those voices that have actually experienced um, persecution, discrimination in the case of Ukraine, this colonial relationship with Moscow? In the case of Ukraine, we've listened to Moscow for far too long. We've given it credibility. We've adopted a lot of misconceptions that the Kremlin imposed on the rest of the world for that Ukraine is supposedly divided rather than diverse, that it's somehow small, even though it's the largest in the region, that it's far too complex to understand. And so we should just give up on trying to understand how it's diverse, how it's multi-ethnic, how it's multilingual. And we've opted for simplifications of that country. And so we misunderstood it profoundly. We misunderstood it because we didn't listen to the voices on the ground, because we didn't listen to Ukraine experts enough, and we haven't seen them as credible. 
And that, I guess, was my main point. And one of the key misunderstandings that is very sad to observe was how Ukrainian civil society was dismissed or misunderstood in the West in particular. I'll give you an example of one organization. It's the Center for Civil Liberties and the director of that center, Oleksandr Matvichuk, they received Nobel Peace Prize this year. But I think that might have surprised a lot of people in the West. I'm sure a lot of people have not heard of them until then. And yet this was the organization that was absolutely key in 2014 Maidan protests, protecting the rights of protesters when they were kidnapped, tortured, beaten up, and sometimes murdered by the riot police. And since then, they started to record war crimes in the occupied territories, in Crimea, in occupied parts of eastern Ukraine, and continued to do so. None of them planned to leave Ukraine at the start of the full-scale invasion, even though they knew that they were on these uh, Russian hit lists, for instance. So these were the heroes of civil society who were extremely important in Ukraine. And yet their role, the role of people like that, was not understood. And when Ukrainians started to show defiance, to show resilience, that surprised the world. And it shouldn't have been surprising. Had we paid attention to people like the Center for Civil Liberties, we would know that's what that's to be expected. That sort of response to Russia's full-scale invasion is to be expected. And what's so striking to me about this piece in particular is the personal elements. You begin the article with a quote from an older male colleague you met at a conference who asks why a pretty young thing like you is studying such difficult topics. How do you see the parallels between your own credibility as a younger female scholar who has been questioned in this way, and that of Ukraine. Yes, thank you for that question. That that piece was very helpful for me to write because I could process some of the thinking that I've been doing for the last 10 months as I was witnessing the response to, to a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and the dismissal of some of these marginal voices. And I was thinking, this all looks terribly familiar to me. And it looks familiar because I've been studying feminist, I've been studying gender and war a lot. And I've noticed in my studies and in my personal experience just how frequently women are dismissed as, as an authoritative voice. We are much more prepared to listen to a particular type of male voice than that of a woman. And the parallel was very clear to me here. Ukraine was also perceived as a pretty young thing, as the sort of state that is relatively new because it can't claim centuries of statehood. But in fact, the statelessness is precisely what I was saying earlier. The experience of statelessness is the experience of problematic, difficult colonial relationship with the center of discrimination, of resistance to that discrimination. It's an extremely valid experience, but it is seen as weakness, not as strength, when in the case of Ukraine, it's definitely a strength. And I suppose in my personal experience, I've been often asked to give interviews over the last 10 months or so to give the human angle to a story. So it would often be after a male, a Western colleague would uh, give a political assessment of the situation, and I would be invited to give a, a human human assessment of the situation. And don't get me wrong, I don't mind giving the human angle to the story at all. What worries me is that the political assessment, the military assessment is not somehow perceived as such that should contain a human angle within it, profoundly mm -hmm. at the center of it. So it's this idea that some voices are, are emotional and therefore not credible, rather than the fact that being emotional is perfectly reasonable in this situation and does not affect your credibility, does not affect your expertise. In fact, it's odd when people talk about such brutal war without being emo emotionally involved in it at all. And that's so interesting you say that the problems that stem from that, because obviously we do see real world 
military consequences of framing Ukraine in this way as just an emotional voice, as lacking credibility. What were some of the real world consequences we saw in February and March of 2022 because of this approach? And it's not just in February and March. It continues to be the case now. It's the fact that the, the Ukrainians were not expected to fight, to stand their ground, to protect themselves, to defend their statehood, their territorial integrity. That There was a widespread expectation that Ukraine would fall within three days. But Ukrainians continue to fight nearly a year later. And we continue to see this sort of still hesitation, lack of trust. The fact that President Zelensky was received so warmly in Washington is heartwarming. Of course, on his his first trip abroad since the start of full scale invasion. But the fact that he had to go there in person and continue to persuade the allies to give air defense Mm -hmm. after so many months of fighting, after months of Ukrainians being deprived of electricity and heating, not to mention the number of destroyed cities and obviously destroyed lives. The fact that he still has to persuade that it's important for Ukraine to be able to protect his sky, that it's important for Ukrainian army to continue to receive support and for Ukrainian society to continue to to receive support implies that there is still that hesitation and there is still the need to maintain, to encourage the solidarity among the allies to continue to support Ukraine and to continue to believe in Ukraine and to be fully invested in Ukraine's victory. Since you you brought it up, I was going to ask you about it anyway, but Zelensky's trip to Washington, as you mentioned, his first time leaving Ukraine since the full-scale invasion. What did you make of his speech? And what also did you make of the timing of his visit? Yes, I thought that his main message was very powerful. And I really hope that it's it's heard all over the world. And the main message for me was that the help that is being offered to Ukraine is, uh, is received with gratitude, of course, in Ukraine. But we should remember that this help isn't charity. It is an investment into global security. In other words, into our security all over the world. And so if we want to make sure that we protect the world order as we see it, democratic order, then we need to continue to support Ukraine, we need to ensure its victory. I really hope that the, this message isn't new. That it has We've heard it since the very early days of the full-scale invasion, but I really hope that people begin to understand that this is our common war and this has to be our shared victory. And in order for that victory to be achieved and also to happen sooner, rather than later, we all have to do something for it. We can't sit back and just watch what happens inside uh, Ukraine. We all need to contribute in our own way, in the ways that we're able to do. And each one of us is able to do something, whether that's staying informed and making sure that we inform ourselves through reliable sources and that we reject Russian propaganda or supporting through donations or through pressure on our political leadership, whatever we are in the world. Each one of us has agency in this and each one of us should feel that we have a stake in this as well. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. 
Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do you think broadly Ukrainian agency has been overlooked in specifically in discussions about what Putin wants or what why Putin is acting the way he is and how Ukraine should respond to the war based on that. Could you just tell me a bit more what you mean? Oh, we see a lot of these discussions from some Western leaders who discuss about bringing an end to the war and what Russia needs to be offered and what the West needs to do to get Russia to to the bargaining table or bring a diplomatic end. How is Ukrainian agency specifically being overlooked in those kind of comments and discussions that are happening. Yeah, of course. I We continue to hear these suggestions that somehow we should offer Russia some kind of security guarantees. But of course, it's Ukraine who needs security guarantees. It's Ukrainian statehood that has been threatened since 2014. Let's not forget that the war started in 2014. It did not start in February 2022. And parts of Ukraine have been occupied since then. And that means occupation, as we now know all over the world, but Ukrainians have known for the first eight years of this war very well as well. It means torture, it means abductions, it means mass graves, all of the things that are being uncovered 
covered by the Ukrainian armed forces as they liberate the occupied territories now. Torture chambers, absolutely horrendous experience of the population that found itself under occupation. When we talk about security guarantees, we certainly need to put Ukraine at the center of that discussion and not the bully, the aggressor that attacked and that will not stick to any security guarantees. We should know that from the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. Russia is very quick to break any agreements that it involves itself in. But it's just in general, this sort of idea of allowing an aggressor to save face somehow and making that our priority is is a sign of our weakness, profound weakness, and is the sign of us succumbing to the idea that might is right. And that is a very dangerous thing to do. People who push Ukrainians to some sort of concessions, I believe are displaying short-sightedness. It's an extremely the lack of pragmatism. We've seen that allowing Putin to keep Crimea for the first eight years of this war without major consequences for his regime simply allowed him to escalate the war, to escalate it to a full-scale war. We need to start learning from our lessons, finally. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because obviously we're being very, we've been very precise in our language here to discuss February 2022 as not the start of the war, but as when the full-scale invasion happened. Obviously, this war has been going on for many years. You write about your brother's death in 2017 in that first phase of the war against Ukraine in your book, The Story of a Dead Soldier Told by His Sister. What are Western narratives missing about the importance of that first phase of the conflict and how Ukrainians were already fighting a war against Russia? I think it's still not seen as part of the same war. Somehow it is perceived as a local conflict that was complicated, that was highly localized. At the time when my brother was killed in Luhansk region on the front line, it was even seen as frozen by a lot of people. He talked about it. So many people were surprised that the war was still ongoing and that they were still claiming lives of the military and civilians as well in, in, the, in, in that region, in eastern Ukraine. So I think it really does need to become very much in our understanding part of this war. And the realization that Ukrainians have been fighting for their territorial integrity, for their statehood, for their existence, for their very existence since 2014, since Russia attacked, first occupied Crimea and then attacked eastern Ukraine, and that they have been protecting themselves as much as they could with relatively little support up until February. And also that they've been successfully reforming in these years, not always not always as successfully as we'd like them to be, but the civil society continued to put pressure on the authorities to reform, to introduce vital reforms, that the army managed to reform itself from really quite you know, untrained, poorly equipped fighting force to an absolutely formidable fighting force that we are witnessing at the moment. And again, I'd like to emphasize here just just the role of civil society in ensuring that even in times of war, human rights were being protected, diversity was being protected, that so much happened in those eight years since 2014. There was an amazing cultural renaissance as well happening in Ukraine, a celebration of Ukrainian a very diverse culture. Somehow all of this, I believe, was missed outside of Ukraine. And at the moment, often there is so much emphasis on the leader of the state and leadership generally, but Zelensky himself. And that's totally understandable. He has displayed courage. He has displayed exceptional 
communication skills. A lot of people dismiss them as an actor with no political political background, but now we can see that the skills he does possess have come in extremely handy for him as, a, as the leader of Ukraine. But what I think is still lacking in understanding is that Zelensky is, as Luke Harding called him recently, amplifier in chief. He amplifies the mood of the nation. He communicates that which is expected by the civil society by Ukrainian nation to be communicated to the outside world. And he acts and stands by Ukrainian statehood because that is exactly what Ukrainians expect their leader to do. Yeah, he's shown tremendous leadership, but also I can't think of another state leader at the moment who's shown the same kind of caliber of international relation skills that he has. He's extraordinarily talented at that. And it's just, that is very interesting. He said that he's the amplifier that he's just reflecting what the mood on the ground is in Ukraine. Yeah, and he's doing it very effectively. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to dismiss him. He's, he's doing it effectively. But it's just, again, whose voices do we listen to? When the president speaks, we listen. But we haven't necessarily listened to more marginal voices. I gave you an example of some of the some of those who spoke before and could have told us about the society something that, that we missed. What would you most like to correct or banish altogether from the coverage of the war and Western portrayals of Ukraine? That's a very good question. So much has already been corrected, I think. It just came at a very high cost. I think I'd like people to understand that Ukrainians did not wake up courageous on the 24th of February and that courage isn't something that necessarily has to be glorified. It's something that has to be understood. And that the reason why there is that courage among Ukrainians ordinary, everybody, from the soldiers who are fighting at the front, and these some of them are professional soldier, soldiers and many are not, the people who were called up, who had regular jobs like our listeners, or who volunteered to fight because they felt that was the most appropriate way to defend their country, to civilians who continue to do absolutely everything in their power to bring this victory closer. There's an awful lot of courage and there's an awful lot of defiance in Ukraine, but that is a necessity. It's something that people absolutely have to do in order to make sure that they survive, in order to make sure that their country survives, because they know that occupation is not an option, that occupation means destruction of statehood and also destruction of the rule of law, of their democratic hopes and aspirations, of the sort of country that they envisaged for themselves, for their children, and that they've been building since the 90s, generations before the 90s, of course, as well, who were hoping that Ukrainian independence would be restored, but especially since the 90s, and in particular since the Maidan revolution of 2014. So I think I would like there to be a bit more understanding of Ukrainian culture, that is the culture that has had a profound impact on Ukrainian identity, which is anti-imperial, which values freedom above anything else, which celebrates freedom, does not celebrate rulers in any way, but actually yeah, celebrates diversity. Yeah, and discover that culture. Discover, begin to understand that in order to understand Ukraine, but also in order to understand that part of Europe is Central Europe. It's not enough to read Dostoevsky. <laughs> it's it's important to to read, to study the voices that speak of the of the experiences that do not come from imperial center, that do not amplify 
also the sort of imperialist position. And that applies to literature, that applies to culture more generally. We have fantastic new cinema in Ukraine as well that speaks about the war, but not only about the war, that speaks about Ukrainian society. And yeah, it also applies to what sort of news coverage we read, for instance. There are fantastic English language news sources that I would really encourage your listeners to to read and to listen. Kiev Independent has been one of them. Absolutely fantastic coverage. I would also encourage us to think about how we form our perceptions of a certain place. And that doesn't have to apply just to Ukraine. It applies to the world more generally. What informs our understanding of a particular place? What books have we got on our bookshelves? Whose voices do we listen to? Whose stories do we listen to and hear as credible? Alessia Kuretuk, thank you for joining me today. That's all the time we have for today. Please join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.